This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 199, Challenges. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. A challenge is at the same time a barrier and a gateway. The burden is on us to make the most of our circumstances and find a way to use them for our own good and the good of the gospel. This week we will discuss challenges that can destroy the brotherhood, that will save the next generation if we get out of the way, that may or may not be extending and improving my life, and that have kept a great game off my table for more than two years. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Paul talks a lot in Galatians about the life that we live, most notably perhaps in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Later in the book, he details the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The life we rejected results in the one. The life we are adopting now results in the other. Or at least that's the way it's supposed to work. The whole book of Galatians focuses on how Christians are not as connected to Jesus as they might like to think. He sums up his thoughts in chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I think that means the life we have chosen in Jesus needs to actually be reflected in our behavior, especially our behavior toward other Christians. And that leads me to verse 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. I get the boastful part and the envying part. I spent a good bit of time last week thinking about the challenging part. Here are my thoughts. Challenging is from a Greek word that appears only here in the entire New Testament. It gives the picture of calling someone into hand-to-hand combat. In fact, it's very reminiscent of the first Bible story I thought of when thinking about challenges, that being, of course, the David and Goliath story in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath challenges, basically dares, Saul and the other Israelites to come and see who was the better warrior. Not exactly the way Christians ought to be challenging one another. In the era of spiritual gifts, this behavior threatened to tear churches apart. Paul spends three chapters in his first letter to the Corinthians telling them how to use spiritual gifts to bless one another and further the cause of the gospel instead of doing what many of them had been doing, bickering over which one was more important. In fact, it's not too far removed from the constant squabbling between Jesus' own apostles over which one was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, the spiritual gifts issue has more or less gone away, but envy and jealousy remain. Competitiveness is part of our makeup as Christians. I want to preach a better sermon than Edwin Crozier or host a better podcast than Chris Emerson. My wife wants to make the best dish at the potluck. We'll talk later about how that doesn't have to be a bad thing. But this verse isn't talking about provoking one another to good works, a la Hebrews 10.24. This is just provoking one another. If you're patting yourself on the back right now for never challenging another Christian to a holiness contest, hold off for just a moment. Maybe we haven't gotten more righteous over the centuries. Maybe we've just gotten more sneaky or more passive-aggressive. I've been challenged at various times by Christians, often in Bible class settings, over something I had taught. And if you don't know the difference between being questioned and being challenged, you haven't taught as many Bible classes as I have. 
When someone asks you to clarify your position on a particular matter, it may be so that they can study it further in private. But far too often it is to start the rumor mill going in the church and around the brotherhood about how you are soft on something. The attitude of the challenger makes all the difference. In 1 Corinthians 14.26, Paul says we should be doing all things for edification. And edifying is a fancy church word for making stronger. So ask yourself the next time your hand goes up in the auditorium Bible class, am I asking this question so I can get smarter than I am or so I can show myself to be smarter than the teacher? Will chasing this rabbit be good for the church or just for my own reputation? And it's easy to say your motives are pure and that the one being challenged needs to take it in the spirit intended. But sometimes the spirit intended is exactly what it seems to be, a power struggle between brethren. There are no winners in that fight. It's not my job to prove myself to be as good a Christian as you are. It's my job to do the best I can and then prepare to give answer to God, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. You can help, or you can hinder. I'd be grateful for the help, but keep the hindrances to yourself if you don't mind. This is what I've been reading. We have more this week from Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. This week's is the one I found the most intriguing. Rule 11. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. It speaks to the natural urge of people, especially young people, and most especially young boys, to do crazy and even dangerous things. The current generation of parents isn't too keen on that notion. They make their children wear padding. Neighborhoods get rid of playground equipment deemed too dangerous. Sidewalks and benches get ugly bumps, making the going impossible for kids on wheels. But invariably, children find ways to make even the safest activities dangerous. It's part of being a child, finding challenges, pushing limits, making mistakes and learning from them. It's not always a good thing, but it's certainly not always a bad thing. Peterson quotes Carl Jung regarding the rationale behind the safety-at-all-costs efforts we see these days. Quote, if you cannot understand why someone did something, look at the results and infer the motivation. End quote. Peterson suggests that if we are sitting here with sulky teenage boys and parks robbed of any real element of entertainment or beauty, maybe that's what the movers and shakers wanted all along. They literally want to foist ugliness and frustration on the world. Perhaps because they had too much of it in their own lives, or perhaps they're selling something that claims to be the solution. We are living in a world where achievement is not celebrated. In fact, the greatest achievers get the greatest share of the blame regarding the world's problems. Lots of well-intentioned and brilliant people have seen their best efforts thrown back in their face for taking personal satisfaction, and yes, making a profit, through ventures that did not completely fix problems we've battled for millennia. A lot of them just quit. John Hammond takes that attitude in Jurassic Park. Personally, I'd never help mankind, he says. And of course, I spent two weeks back in the day talking about Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged. I don't agree with her on everything, but I think she's right about this. The best way to put a target on your own back is to work hard and succeed. And yet, the human spirit continues to push back against systems that seem specifically intended to destroy it. Such has always been the case. Culture craves the status quo. Humans crave exploration. Both need each other. Stability must be challenged by innovation or else it becomes stagnant and toxic. Innovation has to have boundaries or our best and brightest will destroy themselves. 
The answer is not to pick one or the other. The answer is to find a way to balance the system. Fortunately, it seems to balance itself more or less. Creators, the good ones, find a way to make their mark. They're like Thomas Edison, failing thousands of times before coming up with the one stellar idea that changes everything. But if their elders harp on the negative, if they insist on saving them from their own mistakes, they turn this generation's skills and imagination in other directions, and that may not be a good thing. Paul helps us strike the balance in Colossians 3, 20 and 21. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. I think most overprotective parents mean well. I really do. But the terrible mother archetype Peterson references is the worst enemy her children can have. She is the evil witch in the Hansel and Gretel story, imprisoning the children and fattening them up with delectable goodies, all the while planning to eat them in the end. She's Mother Gothel entangled, hiding Rapunzel away from the horrors of the world while exploiting her for personal gain. Safety should not be the objective. Growth should be the objective. And growth is irregular, unpredictable, the very opposite of safe. That's true with literal adolescents in the home, and it's true with spiritual novices in the church. Shoving them into safe, tidy cages may put the older generation at ease a bit, but in the end, it crushes the most priceless values of youth, curiosity, vitality, and an amazing willingness to fall flat on their faces and get back up again. So don't rob them of that. Do not bother children when they're skateboarding. This is what I've been hearing. My good buddy BJ Sipe brought up the idea of drinking a gallon of water a day on his podcast about a year ago. It clears up your skin, it helps with weight loss, it cures cancer. I forget the details on the benefits. Long story short, it's healthy. Well, as you can infer from the lack of details I have recalled, I don't necessarily buy into all of that. But drinking water is a good thing, certainly. And it's a cheap thing. Hal Hammond's famous tightwad. Never met a nickel I couldn't squeeze. So I determined then and there that I would drink a gallon of water every day before I drank anything else. And I did it. In fact, I'm still doing it. I've tweaked the plan along the way, I will admit. I've started drinking a cup of coffee in the morning. Iced tea and lemonade count as water now at restaurants. And there's a brand of naturally sweetened soda that I absolutely love. I'll drink some of that on special occasions. Other than that, though, I've been pretty good. You may be thinking you could be good on your commitments, too, if you could change the rules whenever you wanted. Fair enough. Let me say this in my defense. I only had two objectives in mind, really. One, drink more water. Two, drink less Diet Cola. Diet Cola may or may not be healthier than regular cola, depending on which blogger you read, but it's certainly not healthy. And it's certainly not as cheap as water. Again, Hal Hammond's famous tightwad. Squeeze that nickel. In fact, at one point, back when I had an office in the church building, I had gotten up to about six cans of Diet Cola a day. That's close to $3 in today's market, $20 a week, $1,000 a year. I've cut that by about two-thirds, by my estimation, which saved me about $650 in 2022. Of course, I spent that on board games, starving one addiction to feed another. That's my life in a nutshell. I am calling my gallon of water a week challenge a complete success, and I don't mind saying so. Yes, I could have been more consistent. Yes, I could have kept better records. And yes, even with my heavily modified rule set, I still cheated from time to time. 
But in the end, the only two things that really mattered were clearly understood from the beginning. I gave them careful consideration every single day. I did not beat myself up over individual instances that could have been seen as failures or steps backward. And after a year, I know for certain it has made a difference for good. This illustrates what I consider to be the two most important factors when taking on a challenge. One, make it achievable. Two, make it simple. I would love to visit every national park in the United States before I die. That's likely not achievable. I want to do my traveling with Tracy, and her knees started hurting just this second at the thought of driving up and down the Rocky Mountains for a couple of weeks at a time. And it's certainly not simple. Am I supposed to sketch out a 10-year plan, five parks a year? How much will that cost? How much vacation time can I afford to spend? Will I even live 10 more years? That's definitely James 4, 13 through 16 territory in my mind. Making plans is fine. Making specific long-term plans borders on boasting and arrogance. Personal challenges are good and maybe even necessary. I think I've made my position clear on that already. But don't challenge yourself just for the sake of doing it. Pick something worth doing and that will take deliberate effort. Spending at least a half an hour every day in Bible study and prayer, for instance. Praying for at least one individual every day. Eating dinner with the family every night with no electronic devices. Maybe keep a journal and make notes before bed on how you did that day. And if you had a bad day, don't worry about it. Just commit to doing better the next day. Challenge yourself. And when you do, set yourself up for success. Drive toward the goal. Don't get discouraged. Even if you don't completely succeed, you'll be a better person than you were when you started. And after all, that's what life is all about. This is what I've been playing. I was given a game called Cooper Island more than two years ago now. It was the number one game on my gotta get it list at the time. It's all about using your boats to travel the perimeter of your own peninsula of an island, called Cooper Island, of course, and eventually make inroads into the interior, setting up farms and mines and harvesting the all-valuable victory points, like plenty of other games. Tracy and I have yet to play Cooper Island, and I'm here to tell you why. As I've mentioned before, it is my wife Tracy's job to read rule books and explain games. She's good at that. It's my job to find new, interesting-looking games and bring them into the house. I'm good at that. The problem is, I gravitate toward the more difficult end of the gaming spectrum, what the gamers call heavy games. And as it turns out, Cooper Island is pretty heavy. And right around the time I wanted to learn Cooper Island, my wife went on strike. She said it was unreasonable of me to put this burden on her month after month, that she was tired of reading and learning and explaining. She gave me a challenge. If we play Cooper Island, she says, I would have to do the teaching. I thought that was perfectly fair, so I agreed. And here we stand. I've given it a shot. Really, I have. I read the rule book. I got through about half of a solo game. I watched plenty of playthroughs. But I just don't have the will to soldier through to the end. If I were to be honest, I think I expected Tracy to see my efforts, take a bit of encouragement, and ultimately jump in and save us both from my embarrassment. But she has not. And I'm pretty sure now, after two years, she will not. I love that about her. The challenge was a good idea, good for me, good for us, and especially good for her. Why would she back down at the first sign that things might not go so well? Isn't that the lesson I've been trying to teach my daughters for the last 25 years or so? Adversity builds character, if at first you don't succeed. 
Or have I just been full of hot air all these years, making excuses for putting their noses to the grindstone when I had no intention of doing the same thing? So here I am, once again, huddled over Cooper Island, trying to learn it well enough to answer any and all questions. Not an easy task, but I'll do it, precisely because it isn't easy, and to prove to Tracy that I can do it, and because it's a really cool game. You need a challenge too. I don't care if you're 550 or 500. You need to find something difficult but worthwhile, and then make a plan to get the job done. Watch your progress. Learn from your mistakes. Be scrupulously honest with yourself. This is not about self-esteem, not in the short term anyway. This is about becoming a better version of yourself. That's what Paul did. He writes in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal is not to be baptized or to quit killing Christians or even to spend the rest of his life preaching the gospel. The goal was to be like Jesus, and a more impossible goal has never been set for anyone. Yet he happily embraced the challenge. He made his best effort every day. Some days, if he was anything like me, his best effort wasn't very good. But that just served as motivation to do better the next time. Embrace Paul's goal, and feel free to adopt one or two other ones as well, and make them hard. Hard is good. Yes, hard hurts. Hard is costly. But that's what makes it worth doing. I promise you, if you bury yourself hip deep in a worthwhile cause and commit to sticking out to the end, the self-esteem problem will take care of itself. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.